I think the thought from Democrats is that in order to make policy, the policies that we need to deal with climate change, we need to have healthy, functioning institutions. And if the Democrats don't get the House back or the Senate, then we are very worried about whether our institutions can survive Donald Trump. Why? Is the Dow going to grow another 10,000 points? Are we going to cut taxes even further? Like, oh my goodness, what could happen? No, we're worried about institutional norms that are being violated in a way that is a threat to our democracy. We need a healthy democracy to deal with climate. Time is running out to combat climate change. The United Nations has just released a very doom and gloom new climate change report. But will it even matter? Countries may or may not step up in time to take action, the U.S. included. We discuss how the report is being received and the politics around ditching coal in particular. Meanwhile, Judge Brett Kavanaugh has been confirmed. We end this show by wading into what that means for the midterms. This is Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental politics in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor with Green Tech Media, and I'm here as always with Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton, our Democrat and Republican co-hosts. Brandon was chief of staff at the Department of Energy, and Shane was an energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. How you guys doing? We're back together in one place. It's been a while. I've been on the road. You guys have been on the road. How you so doing? So good. So good. So much traveling. And I'm pumped about election season. I'm pumped for Brandon to buy me a new dinner after Beto gets his ass whipped. I'm like <laughs> 38 ready to million, go. 38 million up. reasons why <laughs> Beto is going to help me get a free dinner from you. So jacked up. Just in case you missed it, there's a bet going on as to whether Beto O'Rourke can beat out Ted Cruz in the Senate race in Texas. And it was a seven point window. So so Cruz can win. But as long as it's not by more than seven points, right? That's right. Until Kavanaugh, it looked like he was going to win by one. Now he's up by nine, even though Beto raised $38 million this quarter. So uh... Your dinner just got more expensive, Shane. <laughs> I like that I get to go no matter what. Being, being the neutral party is just great. Arguably, there are no neutral parties, though, when it comes to climate change. That's at least according to this new United Nations report, the IPCC climate report, perhaps one of the most important climate reports ever put out there. It basically says that we have 12 years to dramatically restructure society to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. That means effectively eliminating fossil fuels or at least capturing all of the emissions they produce to get to a net zero carbon future by 2050. And again, to avoid the worst impacts of floods and drought and food security, um, this is clearly something that would affect everybody on the planet, uh, especially the most vulnerable. So the question for us now is what to do about it. Will anyone care? We're in this heightened political moment in the United States and around the globe. So will this report land? Do you think it really will mean anything? So we want to start there. Shane, going to you first from Republican camp, we have Republicans in power right now. How is this report being received in uh, your world? So I don't think it'll land at all. I mean, I think if you look at headlines, uh, the Republican senators who have been questioned about it dismissed it. I don't think the report itself is going to be a huge impetus in changing hearts and minds right now, especially after, you know, all that we've gone through over the last couple of weeks in Washington and, you know, what we expect to go through uh, for the next three weeks, where I think it's important is that if you care about these issues. If you believe that climate change is a threat, Republican or Democrat, you now have the ammo you need to start crafting solutions and getting people on your side. What's really important is that Republicans need to be incentivized. Doom and gloom has not worked and it's not going to work this time. Whether it's true or whether it's not true, whether it's exaggerated or whether it's not exaggerated, we have found over and over again that doom and gloom doesn't work. What I'd love businesses and industry to do, who have a lot to lose, by the way, 
I'd like to see them start talking to Republican members of Congress and not just say climate change is real. You guys should consider that, but start to think about what could you do in your industry to reduce your footprint? What positive steps could government take, whether that's regulating you more, regulating you less, uh, providing tax credits, providing grants, providing other incentives, permitting you to do certain things? I'd like to see everyone step up and say, this is all of our problem. Government's not going to solve it alone. Industry's not going to solve it alone. Look at the outcome here, because even if this is only half true, it's really, really bad. People should care and, you know, believe it, care. Don't believe it, care, because it really, really helps your constituents. It's going to help me create jobs. And potentially, you know, create a ton of money in the clean economy that would be created around reducing emissions. I think renewables would have to supply 70 to 85 percent of electricity by 2050, according to the report, which is a potentially massive money making opportunity for those developers. And I think people are starting to, to resonate with that across the U.S. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of my point. If you really care about climate change, then you don't really need to be convinced. But if you don't really care about climate change, if the businesses in your state or in your district come in and say, here's the opportunity. If we invest all this money, we can guarantee you we can mitigate some of those impacts. We're also going to create 20,000 jobs, uh, provide economic growth to the state. If you're a member who's not really that interested in climate change, but you care a ton about the state and the people you represent, it's still a win-win. And I, I'd like to see people start making that case. I think the problem, though, and it's one that we've kind of run into before, is what happens to the fossil fuel piece. Like We can add clean energy, and people can get behind that, uh, people from all kinds of political persuasions. But what do you do with the fossil fuel piece? If it has to go away, what does that mean? There's a lot of entrenched, massive industries that will fight that. Or you have the carbon capture sequestration piece that is just such a big wild card in this moment. So... This is what the scientists are saying, right? We have to have, this is not an environmental problem. They're calling for a radical like transformation of our entire economy, our global economy to deal with this. I'll make a TV like pop culture reference that Julia will not understand. But like, because she's the only person not watching Game of Thrones. Uh, I didn't have too. a television growing up. I just like, I'm just not cool. I've never seen it. So in the Game of Thrones for everybody else that is listening, you know, they're the white walkers and they are the ones that like are going to you know eliminate the entire world and nobody's focused on them they're focused on what's happening in this little town of westeros and like that's what's happening here is like everybody's focused on trump's tweets or kavanaugh and all that stuff that we can talk about but the real threat the scientists are are, are screaming at the top of their lungs with this report we have 12 years. We do not have time to let the free market like figure this out on its own. We need those solutions, I agree. But this is what government is designed to do, is to solve big problems that we can't do like individually on our own. And so this is going to require a radical like transformation. And I'm encouraged to hear Shane start saying that like, you know, we need to start like talking about some solutions and such because let's we're going to have our political battles over the next couple of weeks. We're going to have our elections. When the dust settles, we need our government and other governments to start paying. This has to be a priority. So you're right that, that industry can't do it alone. But I would argue that government can't do it alone either. Agreed. You can only do so much in saying, hey, you can't emit anymore. I mean, the U.S. economy is huge right now, bigger than it's ever been. And you can't come in and say, hey, fossil fuels are gone. So what I think you need to do is go to electric utilities and say, how can we help you modernize your grid? How can we help you make your generation, you know, overall lower footprint, whether that's CCUS, whether that's, you know, 
more solar and wind incentives, whatever it is, uh, go to oil and gas companies and say, hey, how can we help you provide your product with less of a footprint? You need both. But but I think the idea that IPP, IPCC, sorry, said that um, we need to get rid of fossil fuels, so we got to do it. It's just never going to happen. And I want to live in the realm of the possible because the realm of the theoretical leaves um, people like you and I having a lot of fun on the microphone 10 years from now, but apparently it doesn't end that well for everyone else. Well, and that's why we don't have a choice. It has to happen. And guess what? You know, I agree with you. The doom and gloom messaging is not, you know, the way to go. Uh, we can lift people out of poverty. We can create a lot of jobs as you're talking about. We can actually save $26 trillion by, you know, building clean energy infrastructure. Uh, you know, there's this new report that came out, the new climate economy report by a bunch of like really, you know, top uh, economists and such that show like, this can be such a good thing for people and we can solve this issue. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the $26 trillion because I think you're right. We've got to spend money. I mean, I, I'm... It, We're going to spend money on infrastructure regardless. 100%. And I'm a traditional conservative. What I want to say to you just out of my sort of core being is, no, we can't do that. But let's be honest. The government's going to have to spend money, whether you count tax cut. Or, I'm sorry, tax credits and is spending. And the private sector is going to spend money yep. on infrastructure. ton of money right. needs to be spent. They say but, $90 trillion across the world by 2030. So if we do this in a clean way, we can save $26 trillion. And just as a point of reference, clean energy investments today, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, set at around $200 billion so far this year, which is actually down slightly from last year. So it's going to end up in maybe like the $300 million mark. The point is we are way off from the trillions so we're talking about. We're talking about huge numbers, right? But as I alluded to earlier, what, what I would want to know from Democrats, especially in the United States, I can't speak for what's happening in other countries, is on this show, we often talk about Republicans need to start making some hard decisions. Climate has not traditionally been a Republican issue. They need to step up. Fine. I'm good with all that, as you know. But are Democrats ready to start making hard choices? When we sat down with Senator Heinrich, I asked him, if we could invest all this money and make this a reality, would you agree to work with Republicans on cuts so that it's deficit neutral? He said he would. And I'd like to see more people like that. For example, if we need to spend $26 trillion, we're not talking about the Obama stimulus that was it's like— It's saying we would save $26 trillion if we did it in a clean way. Fair enough. But you know it costs money to deploy. So I, I saw, I guess, the $24 trillion number. Maybe it was the IPCC report. The IPCC report puts it at $2.4 trillion per year through 2035. So we're talking about— upwards of 20 30 trillion dollars and my question is in the u.s if the government has to play a role and i think we all agree that it does are democrats ready to step up and say we're ready to give up some sacred cows too if you guys will work with us on climate policy including spending the money and deploying the capital and doing the r d that needs to be done we will look at uh you know finding waste and entitlements we'll look at entitlement reform we'll look at cutting in domestic programs that maybe republicans don't support so much it can't be one-sided if we actually want to make ground what's interesting to me about what you're saying is has there been a shift now in the Republican Party? Because where we have been is climate deniers, especially on Capitol Hill. You know, in the 2016 presidential campaign, they had the big debate with 18 Republicans on the stage. Virtually none of them thought climate change was happening uh, and that it was man-made. So are you now, Are you, is there a shift happening in the Republican Party where you feel like you're willing to come to the table and start talking about solutions and compromises on this? Or are we still, because I mean, look at like, Look what just happened the last couple of weeks. Hurricane Florence. Hurricane Michael went from like it added like 80 miles an hour in like 24 hours became like a category one to nearly a category five. Like, is this getting people's attention finally in the IPCC report? What's happening with Republicans? I think I think the answer is twofold. One, I think the answer is yes. I think there are a lot more Republicans, even than you'd read about in the day to day press that think this is an issue, that care about this issue, that want to see solutions. Um, and then the second part of it is some don't. 
but they'd still be willing to play ball if you're talking entitlement reform. So, so you have to look at this two ways. Who wants to address climate because they think it's important unto itself? And who would be willing to play ball if it's a sacred cow traded for a Democratic sacred cow? Either way, you got something going. I think it's interesting to see where at least some of the Republicans came out on this. Obviously, we've talked about Representative Carlos Curbelo, Republican from Florida. He's up for re-election. He said in an interview with the Washington Examiner that people who uh, speak, I guess, against climate change or don't believe that it's happening will be recognized as part of a fringe movement. Uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska said that her role uh, is really to start wrestling with how to deal with the impacts. So you saw people coming out. What I wonder, though, is that just that sliver that we talk about, that sliver of people who have engaged on this? And is that enough? Because there's truly only a handful of Republicans right now who've been outwardly expressive on this. So what does that mean for the more mainstream discussion? And then I think it comes back to the business question. I think when businesses start speaking out and getting more engaged on this, you know, the politics follow. Another interesting sort of barometer on that was Goldman Sachs had a report out this week or last talking about reimagining big oils and the cultural change that needs to happen in those companies so that they can become broader clean energy providers, including investments in EVs, renewables, biofuels, petrochemicals, shifting into gas. So you see one of the biggest financial players putting out a strategy document for those big oil companies on how they can adjust to this I think you hit it right on the head, Julia. If you see big business and media that's traditionally considered conservative media starting to talk about solutions, it's a snowball effect from there. I mean, what Republican is going to say, I'm not willing to play ball here, even if their donors, their supporters, their voters and their media are lining up on the other side? So I think we're starting to see it. And what I'd like to see all of us do is grab hold of it and try to find compromise solutions to take advantage of this momentum rather than retreating to our corners because there's an election coming up or, depending on what happens in the election, retreating to our corners because of that outcome. But here's the thing. It's not enough to have the businesses. I mean, at least that's according to some of the reporting that came out around the Global Climate Action Summit, the whole we're still in movement of businesses that have committed the cities and states that are continuing to take action even as the Trump administration has withdrawn from the Paris Agreement or you know, is working to, other actors have continued forward and they're putting us on the path, putting the U.S. on a path to meeting its Paris goals of 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2025, but it is not enough was basically the conclusion. You can get most of the way there, but there are things that the government has to step in on, specifically lands, some of these other natural resource policies, ocean policies, things that other businesses just have no jurisdiction over. So that's where you have to have a federal plan. Well, no, that's what I was saying. If business lines up and the conservative media lines up, then Republicans in government are going to want to be helpful. Democrats in government already want to address these issues. Shane, does the IPCC report and this 12-year time frame that they've put on us where we have to get super serious in 12 years, does that change your thinking about the role of government in this issue? If I'm being honest, it doesn't. I mean, there's a couple, you know, just from a public relations standpoint, most people who don't do what we do for a living are not aware that that report came out. So I mean, it's not going to change hearts and minds across the country. For someone like me, I've always wanted to strive for what I believe to be the possible. So if the impossible becomes more important than it used to be, that doesn't really impact me as a practical matter because I don't believe the world can be, what is it, a net zero carbon emissions in 12 years. I just don't think that's possible. So I'm not even saying that IPCC is wrong. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying it doesn't matter if they're right because I think there's a 0% chance that every economy across the country is going to be carbon neutral 12 years from now. But if you're right that we can't do that, what, what's going to happen to your kids? I, I don't know. But what I'm already trying to do is whatever is possible. I'm already fighting to get the most amount of progress that is humanly possible. I, I, I don't fight for the impossible because I don't see any value in it. And Julia, 
How did you think the media, like the media coverage of the report? Do you think it was adequate? Do you think it should have been more? Is it just tough to break through? Like what, what was your thinking on it? I may be in the minority on this, but I thought people engaged pretty well with the report. I mean, the doom and gloom people say doesn't resonate, but I definitely caught my attention and people were bringing it up after that whole 12 years until we're doomed kind of tagline. Maybe that fades after first reading, but I thought that was powerful. And I saw it make its rounds on social media and things like that. But of course, the question is, are you just talking to the people that were already engaged on this or did it break through to another layer? And we won't know until we all go to Thanksgiving holidays to see how that went over. But it'll be interesting to see if it did land because in my world, it did. Right. But we're in a specific segment. Well, let me ask you guys both this. And I really want to hear both your opinions. Let's take the doom and gloom scenario as very real. Let's assume that every single prediction in that report is going to occur. If that's true, then as a society, we have to accept that this is a bigger problem, almost like nuclear war, than any other problem we have, which would necessarily mean that partisanship has no place because if there is no planet, there's no politics. And so why now am I getting in Twitter arguments this morning with environmentalists and I'm trying to say, hey, if you really care about this issue, support Republicans who support you, support Democrats who support you, and they're telling me no. We only support Democrats. How is that helpful? If we really, really think this is a life-changing uh, circumstance for all living beings and all living creatures, how can we say, I care about it, but I don't care about it as much as I care about moving the speaker's gavel from the right to the left? Those two things can't live in the same way. Well, world. I think the thought from Democrats is that uh, in order to make policy, the you know the policies that we need to deal with climate change we need to have healthy functioning institutions and if the democrats don't get the house back or the senate then we're like we're, then we are very worried about whether our institutions can survive D donald trump why is the dow going to grow another 10,000 points are we going to cut taxes even further like oh my goodness what could happen no we're worried about the way that the president is using the doj and attacking his, you know like 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 institutional norms that are being violated in a way that is a threat to our democracy we need a healthy democracy to deal with climate so i i believe we have a healthy democracy but let me just entertain what you're saying does even that matter if we honestly believe we have 12 years can't everything be put on the back burner everything like entitlement reform i i, I just i hope that um, I don't see a way in which we have a healthy democracy with Donald Trump as president without a check and balance on him. And that is like the first order. We get the check and balance and then let's get to the table and talk about climate together. So do you think then that removing Carlos, Carlos Curbelo, the only Republican who's introduced a climate solution and as long as I can remember, do you think removing him from office helps restore democracy? Do you think removing him from office is a positive step for the climate movement? Because I think it hurts both, honestly. I would like to see um, more Republicans in safe districts, safe Republican districts, support climate policies. I think we need that. Um, you know, if Curbelo wins and we have a uh, the House majority for Democrats, then like th that could be considered a good thing. But like if we lose the House by one or two seats and Curbelo's still in there, then I think there's a larger threat in the short term to dealing with climate. Well, let's you and me go on a road show and raise money for conservatives in Republican districts who want to address this issue. I'll, I'll definitely I'd love sure. to tap into your donor base. Yeah. Man. All right. All right. <laughs> well, I think 
this is a tiny little news example, but I think it shows just how far we have to go that a Republican senator just in the past few days has introduced a bill that would end the $7,500 federal tax credit for EVs and actually tax them more instead. So here we are talking about these massive amounts of money that need to be moved. And here we have a chipping away at some of the policies that already exist. And that's why people think elections immediately matter and want to put in the policies uh, to accelerate the clean energy transition. So it is very much tied to this election and, and what's going to get done. Well, yeah, and I think that's a big story. I don't, I don't think that's a small story. I think you know, oil and gas interests, they're at the table. They've been at the table for decades, and they're doing a great job at that table. Uh, utilities. Great job of polluting. <laughs> they're doing a great job in Washington. And I think, you know, electric utilities, uh, electric service providers, EV manufacturers, they've got to step up their game. They've got to build some sort of coalition and get in there and fight back. Fight for that space. Fight for that tax credit. Fight for expanding it. Fight for extending it. Fight for electrification of residential buildings, commercial buildings, industrial enterprises. Get at the table. Make it happen. Because, apparently, we've only got 12 years left. So I want to take a minute to talk about coal. We're hearing from scientists through the UN Climate Report that coal power has to be phased out by 2050. And yet the Trump administration has made it a priority to find a way to shore up the U.S. coal industry. Protection for coal jobs has become highly politicized as market forces continue to drive coal plant closures and coal jobs linger near historic lows while clean energy jobs are actually booming. And this isn't just a U.S. dynamic, the politicization of coal. The Australian government rejected the U.N. report's call to phase out coal power, claiming that renewable energy resources are not a viable replacement. A lot of people will then also point to China, where work has reportedly restarted on hundreds of coal-fired power plants. The research carried out by environmental experts at Coal Swarm suggests that 259 gigawatts of new coal capacity are under development in China, and that the government's attempts to cancel many of these plants have failed. And yet, research shows that across Asia, plant load factors, the percentage of time plants actually burn coal, have been plummeting. Justin Gui at the Climate Works Foundation recently penned a story in Green Tech Media all about this. Go check it out. It's called The Death of Global Coal Growth. In it, Gwei also wrote about what he believes is the best climate story never been told, and that is the 573 gigawatts of new coal plants in India, which is twice the size of the U.S. coal fleet, that have never been built. So coal use is starting to decline, but it's hardly gone, and I think we'll continue to see these political fights around the coal sector, including in this upcoming U.S. election. It's also timely because the Trump administration has nominated Bernard McNamee, executive director of the policy office at the Department of Energy, to take an open seat at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, which oversees wholesale electricity markets in America. McNamee is a known backer of the Trump administration's efforts to bail out struggling coal and nuclear power plants, and so he could find a way to make this proposal come to fruition, if indeed approved to take a role at FERC. So... I wanted to hear from you guys. What do you make of all of this? What are the politics of coal these days? You know, FERC is this like agency that probably 99% of people have never thought about, right? And it's technically like associated with DOE. I rarely, you know, inter interact with them because they're an independent agency and you don't want to politicize that. And what Trump is doing on this is like unconscionable. I mean, it's just it's just absurd and it like it just drives me crazy i mean we have you reference what these other countries are doing china and india i mean you know they have an industrial policy on batteries you know we have a battery 
you know, shortage in this country right now. We, there are people that want them in their homes. We need them for our electric vehicles. We can't produce them fast enough for the demand that's out there because we don't like China and South Korea and all these countries have a policy on it and they're, they're grabbing this market and we're falling behind. And while they're all doing that, we're putting these jokers, you know, on FERC. Yeah. I don't know his record, uh, Bernard McNamee, but he did come from the DOE and was a champion of this bailout plan. So it definitely seems like a slightly more political um, nomination than perhaps someone else. And it is being moved through at, I think, a record pace. And he's getting a hearing within two weeks of the nomination, which is quite fast, apparently, in FERC world. Uh, I don't know anything about his record, so I don't want to say anything positive or negative. I also don't know anything about the process they're pursuing. What I will say is that DOE's proposal was rejected unanimously by FERC. Um, Changing one commissioner isn't going to have any impact on the outcome. What I think we all need to be mindful of is that while I disagree with DOE's position, um, at this point, the ball is in their court. If they order it, FERC must implement it without discretion. And if they don't order it, FERC cannot implement it. Um, unless they you know, take a new vote. So I, I don't think that, that that change is going to have any impact on this. I do think that coal is phasing out. We just saw First Energy got approval from FERC to shut down certain coal plants. Um, but at the same time, coal plants are bidding into capacity markets in some parts of the country. So you know, coal will phase out. It's not gone today. And there is a lot of good work being done out there and at DOE that people aren't discussing about carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And as coal winds down, uh, that's a really positive way to turn that carbon into an economically productive asset instead of emitting into the air. The other element to that, of course, is jobs. And I think retraining sounds kind of like a top-down reprogramming kind of thing you're going to do to somebody. But I think there needs to be more of a conversation about what this means for people on a personal level as the coal transition happens. And I remember, Brandon, you would tell a story of just even some people wanting to get out of coal but being sort of stuck there for other reasons. I mean, I think the idea that you know, job training can mean many different things. I thought some of the stuff that Senator Heinrich said on our show was great, you know, but the notion that we're going to like turn all these people into like coders, I think is like insane. But, you know, your point, Julia, I think there's a lot of people in West Virginia, what, you know, people at the DOE have been hearing when they talk about these job training programs is they'd like to move to where the jobs are, but they're landlocked because their home has decreased, you know, in value uh, and they can't sell it. They would have to sell it at a loss and they can't absorb that loss. And so they're sort of trapped. And that can be, I think, a very frustrating feeling. And I think this is something that Democrats, you know, we need to figure out because we cannot lose, you know, that sort of populist element. Uh, That's, you know, the sort of historical roots of the party. And we need to find a way to better connect with some of those voters. It was interesting. I was just in Canada for the past couple of weeks and was in Alberta specifically where there is a provincial mandate to transition off of coal by 2030. And this is in Canada's home of the oil sands, our oil and gas industry. But here they are transitioning off of coal. And the Rocky Mountain Institute recently put out a, a report sort of praising Alberta's approach. They, they gave the coal companies the plant owners a pathway forward and are giving them money basically to transition over that period of time. But then it does create the question of what does that mean for those communities? I think it'll probably mean jobs in the gas sector because they're transitioning mostly over to gas plants. But that was an interesting model to look at how here we are in Canada's oil oil country transitioning off of coal. Well, we used to hear all the time during the Obama administration that certain rules and, 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 and regulations and, and projects were going to create, quote unquote, net jobs. And net jobs is really great when you have a spreadsheet out. Net jobs is not great for the ones losing it at the expense of the ones getting it. So these are serious issues. I actually don't have any solutions to offer, but I think you're right that we need to be Let thoughtful ask about you it. about a potential solution, Shane. Would you support the federal government just 
spending the money to retire those old coal, those coal plants, just get them out. And then we could hire those workers to rebuild, you know, with solar or wind and batteries. I'd have to think harder about it, but the answer is probably no. I mean, would I support the federal government intervening and shutting down uh, electric generation facilities? Probably not. What then I would, rebuilding with healthier, you know, technologies. But we're converging two different things, right? One is our government trying to assist uh, workers, and one is private assets owned by private generators, whether the merchant generators or larger investor-owned utilities. I'd much rather the government focus on R&D, both to capture carbon out of the atmosphere, but also uh, to make carbon capture um, and utilization sequestration an economically productive activity so that those coal plants can live out their useful lives without adding carbon to the atmosphere. We don't have time. We got 12 years. Why can't we do both? Well, we can't capture carbon from plants that we've just closed down. <laughs> so we definitely can't do both. Well, maybe the natural gas ones, you know, you, you start with coal. And just buy those out, retire them. Get them out. Get them out. Are you talking about buying them out? Yeah. Well, th that That's more interesting. I'd have to think about it harder. But if you're paying the asset owner for the asset, then at least you're not doing any real specific right. harm to saying. the private yeah. sector. I mean, you guys um, throw around, you know, trillion and a half dollar tax cuts to one percenters. Why can't we buy these assets and spread it around to some of the working class folks who could use a break? So you're right that Republicans did let Americans keep their own money. What a privilege, by the way. Um, but but on top of that, I, I mean, I well, feel like this is just too a, heavy a, for a, me to a, answer a, on the one percent. You know, a very a very small class of Americans got to keep their money. I believe every single tax bracket went down. Am I wrong? Well, the, uh, I think the amount flowed. was yeah. drastically <laughs> different. It if was I something like more a, than you. Ten percent of mine is more than ten percent of yours. That's let me not, ask you this: Why aren't Republicans running on that in the midterms? How many ads are there about the tax cut? Yeah, I'm sure certain people are running on it, but the they're fact not. of the matter is, they're tax not running cuts ads are on it. It's really not hard to see. I think I will pay less in taxes. I pay my taxes quarterly. I'm not really sure. In a W-2 job, you get paid, what, every two weeks? So it's it's difficult. While families do have more money and the economic growth that's resulted from the tax cuts is clearly showing, our market is soaring, our economy is growing, unemployment doesn't exist, it's really difficult for an individual voter to say, I'm so much better off today than I was yesterday, and I'm going to vote as a result of that. Well, who knew a discussion about coal could end up at Republican campaigning around tax cuts? Uh, we'll have to leave it there for now because I want to get your thoughts on a final even pricklier topic. So obviously this is a political show and because of that, I feel like we cannot ignore one of the biggest political stories of this moment in time, which is the confirmation of Judge Brett Kavanaugh. This is a very difficult moment, I think, for many people, uh, especially for a lot of women who had to relive some very traumatic moments in their lives, watching Dr. Blase Ford's testimony um, and feeling as though they really aren't being heard. Meanwhile, the Kavanaugh fight appears to have mobilized many Republicans. A new poll from NPR, PBS NewsHour, and Marist found that Democrats and Republicans now agree equally that this year's congressional elections are very important, which is actually a big change from responses to the same question from a poll in July. At that time, there was a big gap between the parties. Since July, the percentage of Republicans saying the election is very important has increased by 12 points. So I wanted to hear from you guys. What is your takeaway from this whole Kavanaugh situation, politically speaking? His confirmation will have implications for energy and climate, no doubt. And of course, the elections more broadly will too. 
So I want to talk about him in the context of the midterms and maybe even take one step outside of our regular energy and climate realm in the process of discussing this. So, Brandon, what are your thoughts on all this? I'm really interested to talk to you guys about it because, you know, I think everybody is talking about it. And I haven't had a chance to discuss it with a Republican. So I'm really interested to hear, you know, Shane's, you know, perspective on this. And I think, you know, I think a lot of our listeners um, who are Democrats will be interested to hear what you have to say. I mean, I, um, seeing the Senate, you know, uh, act that way and it just seems broken. It's horrible for our country. Um, I don't think he should be on the Supreme Court. Um, I think he disqualified himself for many reasons. Um, I'm also thinking a lot about, uh, you know, how this fits in with how women are treated in this country. And I have a very, very feminist wife and the things she's been telling me for years, I'm starting to like, you know, it's starting to get through to me, I think. And I'm thinking deeply about how I can improve. I'm thinking about just the stuff of, that women say that they have to deal with that we, you, Shane, you and I never have to think about, like safety issues, being in a parking garage, just daily, you know, stuff that's exhausting for women where they have to assess situations. And so I think, you know, this is a really interesting uh, time on this. And I think the politics, it's going to be, we'll see how this shakes out in a couple weeks. I don't know. I, I, I want to hear from Julia. Like, I don't want to say like how women are reacting to this. I want to hear from you also. Like, how do you think women are going to react, you know, in November and, and how is this going to affect the election? So I'm really interested to have this conversation with both of you, even though it's not really about climate. I think one thing that is climate related, obviously, it's it's his record and the interchange. One of GTM's other podcasts did a great show on Kavanaugh and his record and his sort of conservative uh, view of the law. And so listen to that if you want to sort of break down on that piece of it. What's also relevant is that Senator Murkowski of Alaska, uh, she was being pressured by Native Alaskan groups uh, to oppose Kavanaugh partly because of his record and their, at least how they think he will rule on climate issues and on environmental protection and apparently also so voting right issues um, and other Native American concerns. So that did come into her thinking, apparently. Um, what does that mean for women overall? The thing is, it's really difficult to speak for all women in America. I know a lot of people were very upset. It brought up a lot of pain watching Dr. Blasey Ford go through her hearing. I think a lot of people will be motivated to to vote around this. The question is, were they already animated prior to this, or did this land with them with with women in a way that it hadn't before? And I don't know, to be honest. There is a recent poll, the same poll I mentioned earlier, the NPR PBS Marist one, that talked about more people believing Ford. Uh, over Kavanaugh, that she was telling the truth in her testimony. Does that kind of indicate where Americans fall on this, perhaps? Meanwhile, the indication that more Republicans are going to turn out uh, following the testimony, presumably there are women included in that, in that group of Republicans. So those two different data points make it really hard, I think, to make a conclusion that applies to all women. But I think for some, this has been a very powerful moment, albeit a painful one. And that may translate to more Democratic support at the polls. I'm going to unpack the lighter part of this first, which is just the climate stuff. I think um, having Kavanaugh on the court creates a 5-4 balance where if legislators want to address climate and environmental issues, they're going to have to do it. 
that there's not going to be a lot of leeway provided to any administration moving forward to just regulate where they see fit and try to find a statute to tie it to. So on the policy front, I think the legislature is going to have to act if we're going to see any changes here. That's because he just does not support sort of the regulatory pathway uh, of, of passing regulations yeah. as a way of addressing climate or anything else. He's a constitutionalist. So he thinks that the statute says what it says. You don't imply something that's not there. And, you know, he's an outspoken critic, as, as I recall, of Chevron deference, which is basically the Supreme Court's ruling that says if an agency has a legitimate public purpose and it, you know, is vaguely tied to some law, um, we're going to let it go. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but that's I'm having flashbacks to the bar exam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so I wanted to, get, I wanted to get that part out of the way because I do think that's important. I do think when you start to think about climate, we are going to have to legislate if we're going to do anything. I don't think you're going to see anything like the clean power plan get held up by the courts. Not that this one did, but, but anything in the near future. Um, on the other side, Julia said, I can't speak for all women. Well, I can't speak for any women. So, you know, wanting to be clear about that. I'm not the right person to address you know, how women feel. I'm not the right person to address what it's like to be alone in a parking lot and be scared. What I can say is this movement has brought a lot of issues to bear. A lot of people have to grapple with it. I've got a wife, a mom, and a daughter. So we're all going to have to, to keep an eye on all these issues moving forward and be a little bit more cautious about what we say, what we do, and how we behave. Having said that, I'm not sure that Brett Kavanaugh is responsible for all this. I'm not sure that targeting him and using his confirmation process as a platform to have this discussion is fair to him, fair to his wife, and fair to his daughters. Um, I I honestly think that that this scenario, regardless of your beliefs about what did or didn't happen, this is going to help Republicans, and it's going to help them a lot. It's going to help them in states like North Dakota. It's going to help them in states like West Virginia. It's going to help them in states like Nevada and Arizona and Montana and Missouri, where Democrats had a decent chance of at least holding the status quo in the Senate. I think Republicans are going to pick up a couple seats. I think House races in those states are going to favor Republicans more than they did prior. Obviously, you know, in California, that might not be true. Are you concerned just on the on the strict like electoral demographics about suburban women? I mean, it's such a swing demographic. And between what's happened at the border you know, and now we're talking about the refugee stuff is even worse than people thought and what's happening to children. And then combine that with the way women, you know, are thinking about the Kavanaugh hearings. Do you think you have a problem in suburban districts? I'm not concerned about it at all. Uh, and I'll tell you why. So a lot of people said, are you concerned about the Hispanic vote because of the way that Trump talks about immigration? And of course, he got more of the Hispanic vote than Mitt Romney did. Um, I think that saying women are a voting block is kind of degrading to women. I think that each individual human being, regardless of their gender, has political views. I know a lot of women who are disgusted at the way Kavanaugh is treated. And I know a lot of women who think he should have never been confirmed and thought that he was treated you know, too kindly. And so I think saying, hey, women are going to line up in a certain way because they're women and that's what they do is a little bit demeaning. I think each woman, like each man, like each human being, regardless of race or gender, has their own sort of political views, their own bullshit meter, if you will, to determine what they think is true, what they don't think is true, and what candidates they want to support. Yeah, I, I get that. But when you talk about you know college-educated white women, which Trump won, surprisingly, you know, like I think a lot of people don't realize that. And, and you look at the polling historically, you know, amongst that demographic, it's been pretty evenly split. But now you look, you know, we've talked about Mike Levin on this show down in Orange County. He's running in, you know, California uh, 49. And, you know, this is Orange County Republican bastion and has a lot of, you know, college educated 
uh, suburban women, and the NRCC pulled their money out. They gave up on that race. Think about that. In Orange County, Republicans gave up on a Republican seat. Don't, isn't, don't you think that that's a problem for you politically going forward? It might be. I mean, I think, again, I think they're going to make their own decisions. But also, if you look at the alternative, I don't know that it matters. I mean, should we as Republicans throw out notions of fairness and due process just to try to get certain votes? I'd I'd never go for that. I would never say that we should pretend we're someone that we're not solely to attract a certain racial demographic or a certain gender group. I just don't think that's right. I think you stand up for what you believe is right. You work your butt off to convince the voters that you're acting in their best interest and you deal with the outcome. Well, I guess the only way we'll know really how this is landing is at the, you know, voting day. And I do think a lot of women are animated around this. A lot of women have been very quiet in being, you know, sexual assault survivors and don't talk about it because it's such a difficult issue and they don't feel like they're going to be heard. And so you could see a lot of women quietly voting uh, against the Republican Party, feeling like that is a party that does not listen to their needs. So that'll be interesting. Um, And I guess we probably won't totally know until uh, November 6th. From a political standpoint, though, let me just say that we also heard when Hillary Clinton was running that a lot of women were going to quietly vote because they wanted to see a female president. That just didn't occur. Just didn't happen. So we won't know till after the election. But I think it's always unsafe to assume. And I think if anyone tells you that they know exactly how the Kavanaugh hearings shape the election right now they're just wrong they're just we lying could, we agree on that who knows who knows but it is going to be fascinating to find out well emotions clearly run high with the kavanaugh discussion um, again we'll be watching closely what this means for climate and energy um, at this very moment it's also interesting to think about what kavanaugh might do for the election overall but on a lighter note Does anyone have anything bipartisan they want to say? Anything you guys can offer for our Say Something Nice section here to uh, round us out? So after jumping all over um, Senate Democrats in that last segment, I want to compliment all Senate Democrats because I am very, very excited for this election. I think regardless of the outcome, whatever side you're on, you are waiting for this. You want to see the results and you're excited to get it done. The Senate had a lot of judicial nominations that it had to get through. It looked like a lot of these senators were not going to get to go home and campaign. But Senate Democrats worked with Senator McConnell. They cleared the backlog of judges. They're going home. It's campaign season. It's time to find out, you know, when the rubber meets the road, what what it looks like. And had they slogged through this for the next month, it just would have been too tedious to bear. I wish the Republicans would have done that for Obama when we were there with our confirmations. My God. (laughs) That that, that is not saying something nice, No, that is not. That's the opposite of something nice. It's the truth, though. Um, But Julia highlighted, you know, this Washington uh, Examiner piece that quoted Shane. And, you know, I've always thought of that publication as like a, you know, right wing rag. Uh, Tell us how you really feel. Yeah. So, you know, to to see them do a piece like this um, and to quote several Republicans, you know, Representative Tom Reed, a Republican from New York, Uh, who is in the Climate Solutions Caucus, said climate change is a serious threat and we care about the countless lives this report shows it will impact. That's a really positive development. So um, I'm I'm really happy to see that. Times, they are changing. Maybe. I mean, at least the climate is. Political climate, we don't know yet. It's going to be a wild couple of weeks. We've got a couple more episodes left. We're in discussions with some guests that could be pretty exciting. Uh, more on that to come, hopefully. And then, you know, we're going to have some answers from the voters uh, in a couple of weeks. And then Shane and I are going to talk about our solutions uh, once the dust settles from the politics. And hopefully we can lead a conversation where 
policymakers can get to work because we got 12 years. The clock is ticking. All right, well, we'll leave it there for today's episode. As always, thank you guys for listening. We're a political climate. You can find us on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Tweet at us. We, again, have just a few episodes to go in this season, and then we'll be thinking about where to go from here. We want your feedback on that. In the meantime, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is you listen, and also leave us a review. That really helps out a lot. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening again, and until next time.